0: FMR
1: 101.3 People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudron, welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note right here on Fine Music Radio. Today I welcome back to the People of Note studio because I talked to him some years ago. The violinist David Juritz, who was born in Cape Town, began playing the violin at the age of five. He was awarded an associate board scholarship to the Royal College of Music, where he won the RCM's top award, the Tagore Gold Medal. And then on leaving the RSCM, he joined the English Chamber Orchestra before being appointed leader of the London Mozart Players, a position which he held until 2010. He's had as I say, a distinguished career, many recordings, many concerts, and many visits to South Africa. David, welcome back. Hi, Rodney. Lovely to be back. It is. It's good to see you again. And one of the main reasons you're here is because you're playing at our first concert of the season, where we haven't had concert at the City Hall for so long. Yeah. So you're opening the season,
2: I am. Well, and it's a very, very special night for me because it's actually the first time I've ever played with the... Cape Philharmonic Orchestra. No, you joke. Yeah, no, we tried to set up dates a, a couple of times in the past. It's never worked out for one reason or another. <laughs> I so, can't believe So it. this is a big night for me. I'm really thrilled. Right.
1: And the the concerto is Mozart's fifth concerto of the five he wrote number five, which is the Turkish. Which is quite a a fiendish little piece, isn't it?
2: It's it's a fantastic piece. Actually, he wrote. I mean, he was just 19 years old when you wrote it. Amazing. It, it has the. It's called the Turkish because in the last movement, it's got the sort of Turkish episode. Don't forget that Vienna had been um, sort of freed from the Ottoman rule only not that long before Mozart was alive. So the, the Turkish music was very much in vogue, so he wrote that. But perhaps the most appropriate thing about this piece is that it's such a sort of lively, optimistic piece. And the Mozart marks the, the first movement, Allegro Aperto, which means open. And I just thought, God, you know, it's so great after two really difficult years for everyone to be starting <laughs> a series with a piece of music, which is just bright, lively, optimistic and and wonderful
1: this turkish thing is interesting as you say about the turks and the viennese because it was quite a fashion wasn't it especially i mean even mozart with his opera für fahrn aus dem mm-hmm. serra with yeah. Drum, triangle, cymbals, but he doesn't use that in the violin concerto. Well, he
2: he uses percussion. He gets the cellos to to, to hit, hit their bows, hit their bows, hit the wood of the bows against the string, which makes a sort of clattering noise. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really imaginative. He's, you know, he's, it almost reminds me of a story about Mozart of Mozart arguing with Haydn. He Mozart wrote a chord that Haydn would never be able to play, or maybe Haydn challenged him. So Mozart wrote this chord with the bottom notes of the keyboard and the top notes of the keyboard, and one note in the middle. And Haydn said, you can't do that. So Mozart put his hands top and bottom of the keyboard, played, and played the middle note with his nose. Oh, my so, goodness. So he was quite a creative <laughs> guy. <laughs> I thought didn't outside know that. the box.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, all those jokes, a lot of them, thanks to the film Amadeus, Amadeus yeah. where he apparently used to sit upside down when he was a child and play the piano. Oh and yeah, city yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. We're just having fun, actually, which yes. is which actually is what we should all be doing. Music. But
1: the other interesting thing, David, about these Mozart violin concertos, I think he wrote them all in one sort of spurt, with the exception of one, but I don't know which one. Yeah, but he yeah. wrote them in very quick succession, didn't
2: he? Yeah, so, I mean, he must have worked so quickly. And as I say, I think he was. It was you don't know exactly when he started working them, but mm. they they were all they've got consecutive catalog numbers, the Kirchel numbers. Yes, so yes, so yes. I think yeah, he did. He wrote them very quickly, and as I say, just in his late teens. But you know, he also as a composer, he would write a piece of music. He'd write the first section of something, and then he'd write a few bars of the the second section of, the, of the, what we call the exposition, the first section, and then the development where things. He'd write a few bars of development section. And then put it in a drawer, and and the there are things like he's. There's a fantastic string trio, that he wrote, but we've only got a sort of page and a half of it, <laughs> because he he the way I think he worked, he'd have an idea it's for a great piece, he'd write out what he'd heard in his head, and then just a few reminders to remind, and then he'd wait. Probably till you got a commission to actually produce it, so, ah, and then you clever. put it in the drawer and say, "Right, I'll come back to that later." <laughs> Get so then, some money out you know, of the, it. Yeah, yeah, and there, I mean, it's so it's tantalising because, I mean, of course, we know all the wonderful Mozart pieces that he, he finished, but they're actually even more that that mm-hmm. he just gave us a glimpse of. Rather like of,
1: Schubert, he kept putting things on the bottom drawer, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And not finishing yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Famously, only, his Eighth yeah. Symphony. I read somewhere, I think, that these Mozart contretions, they might not be showy a la Tchaikovsky, but that they require a very special form of musicianship. You need to be a really good musician to bring these concertos off.
2: I think with Mozart, it's absolutely right. I mean, I think they, they're pieces which they need a lot of discipline, but you have to put all the energy in, and sort yes. of life into them that you can. So you've obviously they've got to be played sort of, tastefully and, and it, Elegantly it needs to and sound pretty elegant most of the time <laughs> yeah. but you've also got to be prepared to push the boundaries a little bit so that mm-hmm. sense of playfulness, fun and
1: like in the last movement of the number five that you're going to be yeah. when it goes all Turkish
2: yeah yeah and, I mean you, you know that's your chance to go wild a little <laughs> bit and it's, it's fantastic fun and what
1: about the cadenzas of these concertos
2: I've done quite a few different ones over the years, but I'm going to, this concert, I'm going to do the, the standard ones, which was written by the great Hungarian violinist, Joseph Joachim, who was a a very close friend of Brahms. Mm. And he, he, he wrote us a lot of really wonderful cadenzas. And I've sort of, I've played around with several. Different cadenzas over the years, but I'm, I'm for this one. I thought I'll go back to this. Have you ever young,
1: written your own cadenzas for these works? I've written
2: short, not for the concertos. I've written oh. short, short cadenzas for other Mozart pieces. But um, okay. yeah, I, I probably should get round to it. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously too lazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's hard work, isn't it, David? Yeah. What is your first piece of music is intriguing now. I can see the CD lying there. What is this all about?
2: Oh, well, this is a project we did checking the record sleeve. I think we recorded it in about 2018, yeah. And we recorded it at Abbey Road in the same studio, the famous Beatles studio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's with someone who's become a very good friend, a wonderful New Zealand-born pianist, Alan Broadbent. And Alan's he's... He's an incredible musician. He's won a couple of Grammys and worked with all the greats. And he's done this fantastic arrangement of Dave Brubeck numbers with a string section. And he got in the London Metropolitan Orchestra, who I, I, I lead quite often in the studios. And that's made up of some really top, top London string players. I mean, they're all sort of solos and chamber musicians in their in their own right. And I arrived at the studio on a Monday morning and I'd said to the manager, I'd said, Look, just let me know if there's any solos that I need to have a little look at and I didn't hear back from him, so I thought it's fine, I'll just go and have a lovely time with playing Alan's wonderful arrangements. Got into the studio and found this huge violin solo on <laughs> on, on, on <laughs> and then Alan came down and said, oh, look look, I just wrote you a little solo, we can record it now if you want and I said, you know, Ellen, I think I might take it home with me this evening, and we'll I'll, we'll do it tomorrow morning. So I went home, got my son, who's very into jazz, who played through with me on on the piano, and we worked on a little bit, and then we went into the studio the next morning and recorded. But it was just, you know, it was it was one of those kind of, you know, it was like a fantastic gift to be given a mm-hmm. wonderful solo like that because if you if you just, I mean. It's wonderfully written for the violin, but the string writing, if you just hear the colours that Alan gets out of the string sections, it's incredible.
1: So what track are we going to hear This from is that? called,
2: oh, sorry, I didn't tell you today, it's called Strange Meadow Lock, which was a Brebeck number I wasn't really that familiar with until then.
1: How about that? Music by Alan Broadbent. Actually, this CD is called Broadbent Plays Brubeck. That track was called Strange Meadowlark. And you also heard David Master, who is the concertmaster, of the London Metropolitan Strings on the CD called Broadbent Plays Brubeck. My guest is David Juritz, a violinist who's in town to play with the orchestra this week at the City Hall. Mozart's Violin Concerto Number no. 5. But I just want to go back to this CD for the moment and ask you, <laughs> just out of curiosity, what it was like being in that studio, the famous Abbey Road studio. Is it – have they kept it more or less the same? It's
2: or? it's actually protected by law. There's a Is preservation it? order on it. So you're not allowed to do anything else with it. And, and uh, the rest of Abbey Road has been upgraded sort of at least – Two or three times since since I started working there, but Studio Two stays exactly. Is it Studio the same. Two? Studio Two, yeah. It's it's the medium sized one. It's quite a nice room to play in. The big Studio Studio One is is actually a much much nicer sound, but you know Studio Two is what it is. Is so. that
1: the one where EMI does their big orchestral? Yeah, yeah, you example, do the big
2: orchestra. But we, yeah. I mean, it in London at the moment. There are two sort of major studios. There's so much work. Comes through London that, that uh, you know, we'll be in Abbey Road sort of two or three times a week quite often. But it's a, it's a fantastic. Did place you to ever
1: see, hear, go into, or play in, or record in, how's that for a multiple <coughs> question, Kingsway Hall when it was still being used? Or was that way before your time? Yeah,
2: I was so lucky when, from my English chamber orchestra days. Oh, yes, you were. We recorded the Condeloup Songs of the Over and with Curator Kanawa and Geoffrey Tate conducting mm. in the Kingsway Hall. And actually, that that hall had an unbelievable sound. It was sort of right built right above the central line, one I of the London's so. biggest <laughs> Tubes, <laughs> t- 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 tube, tube lines. Line. So, yeah, yeah. so you quite often lose takes or have to wait while a train rumbled through <laughs> underneath. But actually, even then, it was worth it.
1: And what famous recordings have been done there? But you talked about the English Chamber Orchestra, which I mentioned for a while. You must have worked with famous conductors. You mentioned Daniel Barenboim. I mean, he's still very much up there with the greats at the moment, isn't he?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, I mean, he used to come in every now and again. I mean, I remember one concert at the Festival Hall where he played two Beethoven concertos. I think it might have been number one and number two. And, uh, he, I mean, if he, of course, he was very, very close friends to lots of members of the orchestra. I was a very junior member in those days, but you know, to see the guy sit down at the piano, he said he hadn't played the piano for five weeks or something before <laughs> he came. And he just sat down at the piano and it was, you know, it was like watching a lion play the piano. Well, I, Not if I a lion could play the piano, <laughs> yes, you know, I know no, you I mean, mean, just this absolute assurance. Yes. So calm. So authoritative and fantastic as well. You know, he was—he was an awe-inspiring. Well, he is, he is an, an awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring musician. I um, know
1: he makes some people cross in the orchestra because he apparently has got a bit of a temper he, and a bit of an ego. But I suppose he, when you're at that he stage, could, he
2: could be a bit of a bit sharp, very direct. <laughs> I mean, I remember one. We used to do these music cruises, which were very nice. I got a trip around the Med. In September, and then we'd go to the Caribbean in in January. So it was quite a, a jammy. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- and then we'd be joined by the likes of Baron Boyum, Isaac Stern, Guidon Kramer, mm-hmm. Yo Yo Ma. They they would all come on the ship, and we'd do concerts together. And we were doing one concert with Baron Boyum in Santo Domingo or or somewhere, and playing a Mahler symphony tiny orchestra trying to play the adagio from Mile Five. And I remember I sort of did something with Baron. Bum said at the point of the bow, and I was at kind of at, at the heel at that point, and he spotted me said, pointers are the end of the bow. You know, he'd be very direct like <laughs> yeah, that, but yeah, I, yeah. I think that was the only time I got told off by him. But, but you also said mild. you
1: learned such a lot from him.
2: Well, I mean, from from musicians musicians like that, and Murray pariah we you know played in a lot of uh, Murray Parry's recordings, the piano concertos Mitsuko Ichida as well. Even I mean, going back further than that, George Malcolm, it was you know was a legend from my father's generation. You know, and they would all be completely different in their of styles, course, and being up thing. close to them as well. You know, someone like the violinist Henrik Shearing, who you know used to idolise, and we'd on these music cruises, we'd just go and sit in on the rehearsals and Shearing would talk us through what he was doing. So it was a great experience to, my to see them. One of the conductors, the English conductors
1: that I've always absolutely admired, and I wonder if you've ever worked with him was Sir Colin Davis. Oh,
2: Colin Davis, yeah.
1: I did. His some... recording, in fact, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. David, of the Violin Concerts of Mozart with Arthur Grumio oh, is my favorite recording. Wonderful, of yeah, course.
2: he was, uh, Grumio was just incredible. Now, Colin Davis, we worked with him a bit in the English chamber, because I remember Working him, doing uh, with the uh, London Symphony Orchestra, doing um, Symphony Fantastique as well. Yes. He was he was one of those conductors that he wouldn't really have to say very much, do very much. He just made everyone feel like a better musician when he was on the podium. Mm. And you isn't know, that it was the like a kind compliment? of yeah, a kind of alchemy. You know, he would yes. he would just everyone would relax and it would just work. You
1: know? Yeah, they are amazing, and uh, I mean. Barenboim often reminds me, and some Barenboim fans may not agree with me, of yeah. Bernstein, where they are just so essentially musicians down to their yeah, core. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I remember doing. We were doing some recordings with Periah and with Schulte, where um, there was a funny little project where they were each conducting one another in a Mozart concerto and um, played the Mozart double record, and the Mozart double concerto together. And we were doing the sessions with. Schulte was playing the D minor concerto, which has this very stormy, tense yes, yes, opening, yes. and Murray was conducting, and Schulte was, wasn't was happy with it, <laughs> and so got Murray to start a few times, and it still wasn't what he wanted, so Scholte said, I'll show you, and he got up stood on the podium and he he didn't really conduct so much as do a sort of slow motion sort of break dance, you know he was <laughs> making these strange movements but there was yes. a kind of electricity mm. in the orchestra and he said you know conducted a few bars gave the baton back to murray <laughs> murray started and it was all exactly the same but there wasn't quite the tension there and uh-huh. i I have no idea how Schulte managed to do it. He could, you know, they could, it wasn't about getting at the same speed, the same loudness, even the same balance. It was actually being able to inject that, that sort of undercurrent in the music, which was, was really, you know, it was incredible.
1: But they're wonderful stories about Scholte, the London Philharmonic calling him the screaming skull because of his, <laughs> <laughs> because of his temper. Yeah, I know, I
2: know a lot of people who, who, you know, I mean, the thing is, you work with conductors like that. And I mean, for instance, Jimmy Galway, I worked with Jimmy a lot. I'd, mm. I'd spent eight years leading orchestras with Jimmy, which was, was quite a challenge <laughs> at times, you know. I mean, it's, but the thing is, those people are so demanding of themselves. And also the reserves of sort of confidence that you need. You know, they're, they're not always going to be that easy to work with. And and also, you know, orchestras work incredibly hard. So you might, particularly the London the Symphony Orchestra, some of these heavy programs, lots of touring, lots of traveling. And lots of film. Yeah, music. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the orchestra will quite often be really tired. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes it needs someone who's a bit of a slave driver to, to kind of <laughs> kick things back into gear. But But actually... You know, you look back on the recordings and the concerts, and they were. Worth we it. were
1: lucky to have so many of those great conductors. Absolutely. And great recordings. Well, I think it's time for another piece of music. I see a disc here called Goldberg Variations Arranged for Violin, Guitar, and Cello. Juritz Ogden Hugh. What's this all about? Oh, um,
2: well, that was uh, a bit of a mistake, really. Craig Ogden, the Australian guitarist, he's a very good friend of mine. We, we've got a tango quintet together, and we play. Do lots of duo and trio things together, but um Craig and I've played at a lovely concert series for quite a few years, and the promoter that who organizes always likes us to bring something interesting and we 've brought so many different things there we 'd sort of exhausted all our repertoire, and I happened to offer the concert concert in about 2016. uh, He said, can you bring something interesting back with Craig next-gen? I said, well, well, I've been thinking of maybe arranging the Goldberg Variations. And I didn't really think about No one about threw it. up their hands. But yeah, no, horror. no. No, well, I mean, the, look, I mean, the Goldberg variations it was written for harpsichord. When yes. Hear, I'm being defensive here. I know, but when you hear it played on a piano with, which has only got one keyboard rather than two keyboards, yes. that's an arrangement. So I well, well, true. yeah, but, um, but anyway, I, I said I'll, I was thinking of arranging it and then forgot about it for about six months. And then I thought, hmm, around about six months before the the console, I thought I'd better just have a little look at this and start start work on it. And I realised almost immediately it was just impossible. It you know, it was a terrible idea. So I rang up Colin, the promoter, to to see if we could perhaps change the program and he'd already printed his his program <laughs> oh, for the year and yeah. and sold tickets and he was you know in fact we didn't even get to the point of discussing it he just oh everyone's looking forward to your goldberg variation. Oh, so so rather than have a humiliating climb down i thought well i better get on with it and i mean some of it was actually quite easy to arrange and some of it was extremely difficult to arrange and some of it was easy to arrange but very difficult to play for oh. particularly for the cello and the guitar because they they have to play up quite high but but actually I've worked on it for about three or four years after that, and we recorded it last year. I think we're heading towards about a million streams in, Gosh, in that's nine very months. good very good um and it's look i mean if I said I was pleased with the way it turned out that's because it's Bach <laughs> did all the, the hard work Art for think. me, but but it, it's quite nice to have, have you know, rather than just having three stringed instruments, to have the guitar playing, playing, then you get you get a little bit of an echo of the harpsichord. That and no originally. sign
1: of a keyboard instrument. No <laughs> sign of a keyboard instrument so at all. Now, of course, I wonder, I think I'm definitely going to suggest we play the opening aria. What do you think? Because firstly, it's the most beautiful piece of music. And secondly, knowing it on the piano or the harpsichord, it's going to be fascinating to hear it in this combination. so Are we allowed to do that? I think, I think that's a great idea. Okay, so here it is, is the aria on which the Goldberg variations are based in this arrangement by my guest, David Juritz, for violin with David, Craig Ogden guitar, and Tim Hugh cello. Thank you. Oh, no, that's fascinating. How about that? That's the famous aria that opens the Goldberg Variations. And it was that arrangement by David Juritz for violin, guitar, and cello. David Juritz violin, Craig Ogden guitar, Tim Hugh cello. It sounds, David, as they must have worked very hard, but you sort of captured the essential feel of the piece.
2: Well, it's, you know, there's this sort of trope that... Bach can be played on any instrument, and it's all very well saying that, but when <laughs> when when you're actually fiddling around with his music, you you definitely feel him looking over your shoulder, you know and, yes. and also when Bach was alive, you know the the big musical debate of the time among composers was, would there be music in heaven, and it was agreed that there would be music in heaven, but only perfect music would be able to be played there and Bach didn't really enter into the debate he just wrote perfect music (laughs) and you know the deeper you go into the Goldberg variations you when you start analyzing the form and what he did there it is mind-blowing in its perfection there's all sorts of mathematical relations that that occur between movements the you can divide it into two sections and they've got exactly the same number of bars in each half and that's something which actually goes in this other music as well so really i mean had i known what i'd learned (laughs) doing the arrangement before i would have never just casually said to somebody i'm thinking of arranging the goldberg variations (laughs) because actually it's you know you feel that you're tinkering with something which actually you should a be. lot of respect.
1: David Juritz is my guest on People of Note this week. He's playing the Mozart Violin Concerto No. 5 with the orchestra and Bernard Gurley this coming Thursday. And David, your repertoire, I have to say, seems quite wide. Do you play the Bach solo violin pieces as well and do they say something to you?
2: Yeah, well, I've, I've become quite a, a Bach obsessive like most musicians. <laughs> uh, I recorded the Sonatas and Partitas, I think in 2010, so I've... I've And again, yeah, same story, you know, talking about perfect music. There's not only these, you know, astonishing kind of... I mean, there's a thing you can do as a musician. You're counting the bars in Bach, and you find all sorts of patterns in there. And then musicologists have done research where they found chorale tunes hidden within the pieces of music. And also there's a kind of... there's a narrative right the way through the six sonatas and partitas is very much about man's relationship with God and the first sonata for instance represents the nativity, the birth of Christ, the second sonata represents the crucifixion and the third sonata represents Pentecost and then you have three partitas which accompany them and I think my Personal belief is the first part he represents the creation, God creating man. Then the death, the Chacon, the greatest, greatest piece ever written for solo violin, was written. <laughs> Bach wrote in memory of his wife, yes, his first wife who yes. died. And then the third part he represents heaven, the sort of reunification of man with God in the, the afterlife. So they're, they're these sort of incredible sort of resonances that go through it. I mean, personally, I'm not religious, but, but I think most of us musicians, we do feel a little bit like playing Bach is a bit like praying Mm -hmm.
1: and the the cello sonatas aren't like that aren't they the cello sonatas I should say I remember someone saying to me in fact it was Richard Koch's wife Susan Mm -hmm. Koch who said to me that when you sit and listen to the Bach cello yeah 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 it's like listening to a very wise old man talking to you and you sit quietly and listen to him because he's saying very important things yeah and I love that when you listen to because you need as a listener like the violin part-eaters and all that, you need to concentrate. It's not the sort of thing that you're going to tap your foot yeah, to and yeah. sing a tune.
2: Well, I tell you, you know, it's good for your mental health, Bach. Yes. It really is. And, <laughs> and I found that, you know, in 2007, we, we talked about this last time, I did this sort of busking trip around the world. Yes, around the world. Just playing probably. Bach. And, you know, it didn't matter... How crazy things were, how, you know, cause it, it, that trip was, cause I was busking, it was a disorganized trip. That was what it was meant to be. I, I never knew where I was going. I didn't, you know, it, it was quite a sort of struggle. But it was a time. success. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, was no, it, huge, success? it was, yeah, yeah, it was, we, I, I made it around in about five months, but, but I would find each day, it didn't matter how difficult things were and how uncertain things were. If I stood on a street corner, I played Bach for an hour. I would just be back in that sort of safe mental headspace. And it would help you, you know, really help me recharge my batteries to, to get on. So, I mean, every day without question, I play Bach.
1: But also you are very passionate, aren't you, David, about young people, about education, disadvantaged communities. You've done a huge amount of work all around the world, including here, Mozambique, South Africa, with that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, when, when I did the busking trip, we set up a charity called Music Quality, which we kept going for, I think, eight years. And we funded projects in Uganda, South Africa, Goa. Haiti, uh, sort of, I think it was seven or eight different countries, but but they were all aimed at underprivileged kids. And, you know, music is a great way of giving kids something that they can be proud of, uh, giving them the chance to perform, putting some structure into their lives. And and, um, I've always said that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, your experience in music is the same. Uh, And if you're playing, it's whether you're prepared to put the effort in, the work in, um, rather than whether you've, got rich or poor parents so what violin do you play i'm incredibly lucky about uh 20 well just a bit over 20 years ago a friend um, rang me up to say that someone was visiting london with a, a very nice guadagnini guadagnini was uh well he wasn't he was a little bit younger than stradivarius may have worked in strad's workshop He was born in a town about twenty miles from Cremona, where Stradivarius and and Amati and all the great, other great makers lived. So he's really in the kind of top flight of violin makers. Anyway, the squad came up for sale. I wasn't. I was. I had a lovely Italian violin made in around about seventeen fifty. So it was a proper piece of kit. Um, (laughs) But I, I I thought I'll just have a look at the quad, played it a bit, and thought. I need to have this violin so we managed to buy it and it's the most incredible instrument it's uh you know it's one of those kind of instruments you can play really really quietly on but it'll project above mm-hmm. an orchestra you know which is it's, it's kind of sort of magic which those italian instruments have which is why all of us want to to get one and <laughs> i've, I've yeah. been incredibly fortunate did you bring it to
1: south africa yeah 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 okay. no, so we'll hear it on thursday yeah night. yeah all right, well, let's have some more music now, David. And I see you've chosen Cantley. You spoke about it earlier, working at Abbey Road, recording this with Dame Kiri Takanoa and Geoffrey Tate. So it must have a special memory for you because I know that this recording has always been highly regarded.
2: I suppose one you know, one plays on so many recordings. If, if you work in London, we record that all the time. But there are just a few recordings that the memory of being in the studio really stands out, and this is one of them. It was Geoffrey Tate's, I think his first sort of conducting job. I I can't remember whether the original conductor dropped out at short notice and and Geoffrey was a pianist at the Royal Opera House. But anyway, Geoffrey stood in it very short notice. And to me, what stands out about this recording is it's the wonderful sound of Kingsway Hall, as we discussed earlier. Of course, Kiria Tikanova's was. Voice was made for this music, and then also there's the English Chamber Orchestras who had the soloists in the wind section. We've got the wonderful Neil Black on oboe, uh, Thea King on clarinet, William Bennett on on flute, and what that's quite a lineup. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and I mean, of course, they were all sort of recognised soloists in their own right, and they were also very idiosyncratic players very individual the, the kind of player that was immediately recognizable when you heard them mm. on the radio or something mm. so so i think there's so much sort of color in this recording i'm i'm just a little part of the string section <laughs> okay. but i'm so proud we to have listen out for it, you yeah <laughs>
1: Well, David, I liked what you said. Kirik Takano's voice was made for these songs. That was Bayero from Cantalube's Songs of the Auvergne, with the orchestra conducted by Geoffrey Tate. He was made a knight just before he died. You remember Sir Geoffrey Tate and he then died a
2: few Yeah, months. I know, I know. So so I mean he was he was just a wonderful guy, actually. Well, I With
1: really like his recordings of the Mozart Piano Concertos, Mitsuko With Mitsuka, yeah. I really think they're great. Now, yeah. as always on radio, you tend to run out of time, but one thing I wanted to mention was, I remember when you were here years ago, you played the Four Seasons, Vivaldi's Four Seasons mm. at Various. And I remember really quite liking it. Oh, good, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but they say that your recordings of the Four Seasons, your recording released in Nimbus in 2012, is regarded as one of the finest. And that's quite a thing because there's so many of those recordings about. But clearly they mean something to
2: you, those four uh, Well, I, I, I love playing the Four Seasons. I've, I have played it a lot. Mm. Um, my wife says I must never tell anyone how many times I've played it. But <laughs> a lot is a lot. Okay. Um, it's music that you, you have fun with. Vivaldi invites you to experiment, to mm. do you know anything wacky and wild. And they and, are, aren't they? And they're meant yeah. to be wacky yeah. and wild. And actually, they? I love you know I love listening to new recordings of it because you know every violinist comes up with ideas, and I think that you know they're all getting even more wacky and wild <laughs> as well. So it's how brilliant.
1: Nigel Kennedy shocked everyone yeah, with his yeah. First well, I played
2: set. on Nigel's uh, on that recording. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. Sort of towards the end of my time in the ECA, and oh, yeah, yeah, that so, must have been yeah. an no, experience.
1: No, <laughs> Did you think, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> but um, and, but you also do Sarah Beth Briggs. You've got this trio that you work with as yeah,
2: well. Yeah, yeah, with with the pianist Sarah Beth Briggs. She was for for many years. She was the youngest ever finalist on the BBC Young Musician of the Year, and wonderful pianist and incredible Mozartian oh, okay. player. You know, she's she's so so. We worked. We've got a recital coming up next month. Together, So that, that'll that be the first time we've been able to play together for over two years. Yes, we we tried to do living. a few things in lockdown, but it's, yeah, yeah. you know, sort of remote recording. It, it doesn't <laughs> no, not really... Well, it's, it's such a compromise. <laughs> and we just thought, you know, let's leave it until we can actually yes. do it properly. And
1: you, you're based in London, aren't you, David? Yeah, yeah. I live that in West
2: London. I've, I, I was sort of at a stage where I was thinking, oh, I could go back to Cape Town maybe. And then I met a very nice woman. And that took the rest the history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they we say. we were married very quickly, but, and two children followed oh, in, right, in exactly. fairly quickly And are you succession. fairly busy, David, uh, as a musician? Um, well, most of us actually, we we stayed sort of mediumly busy during lockdown. In fact, I I ended up setting up a little recording studio in in one of the rooms in the house, and and we re- recorded one of the some big Hollywood film. All of us recording the part separately to, to try. So, <laughs> so we sort of kept going through that. Um, the last few months have been very busy with the, the London tango quintet, which I'd have with the guitarist Craig Oldman, wonderful accordion player, Milos Milivojevic. I'm going to try and bring them out at some point. Oh, you because, must. That, that um, sounds So lovely. we, we had, we had a whole string of concerts in the UK. All the concerts that we should have done over the preceding two years were kind of condensed into about five weeks. Yeah. And, and things are, you know, obviously it's, it's very up and down. People are still quite jittery, but I think, I think things are starting to look quite busy for next year. So, um. This is
1: good. Yeah. And it's so nice to have you in Cape Town. I hope you're going to have a bit of a holiday as well while you're here.
2: I, I thought I'd just give myself a few extra days as well before I head. Back to the winter. Yes, um, of course. Of and course. and and it's lovely to be here and, and well see old friends, see Cape Town. I mean, it's. I hope you realise how lucky you are living here. <laughs> well,
1: you know, you do wonderful. tend to take things for granted, don't you? But oh, are you yeah, right? Yeah. I'm not a Cape Town. You know,
2: I've, I've I've been lucky enough to travel yes. quite a bit, and Rio perhaps comes close, but it doesn't have the sunsets. And ah. but I think you know, Cape Town really is. You know, I know I'm slightly biased, but it really is the most beautiful city <laughs> You're in the world. Allowed so, to be
1: biased. Yes. All right. Well, David Juritz, thank you. It's going to be great to hear you on Thursday night with Mozart's violin concerto number no. five with the Cape Town Philharmonic and Bernard Guerlain. And we'll see you there with your Gardaginini. Guad-anini. Guad-anini. Yeah, oh, right. I think Panini with Gaudin. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. And come again when you come and chat to us again oh, on yeah, Fun I, Music I Radio. We're be, next to you. Be here. back. Yeah. And we're going to end actually with you at last playing one of these violin pieces by Bach. Tell me what what we're going to hear.
2: This is the the prelude from the. Party to number three in E major. That sounds terribly formal, but I guarantee you everyone will recognize this piece.
1: Thank you, David. So we'll go out with that. The music of Bach and my guest on People of Note this week was David Juritz. Thank you, David. Great. Thanks, Ronnie. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR
0: 101.3